0: Coalition rabbit hole this morning Uh, I was reading an article by Rosaria Butterfield in response to Jen Hatmaker and maybe I'll go through the article at some future point but um, well I guess before I get into this I've only ever read one thing by Jen Hatmaker and it was seven Um, I really liked it like I like her um for at least from that book um i don't i mean honestly she had me at she i'm an extremist and just the fact that she did this thing that she was willing to commit to doing some really hard things and to owning um some of the excess in her own life um and even just the way that she talked about church was very inspiring to me individually personally um, so I was definitely disappointed to hear about her stance shift, um, and honestly, just really bummed for her when I found out this morning. Um, I mean, it's old news. I guess it's about about a month, but she's she's divorcing her husband. Um, so I just, I mean, yeah, just it sucks. Um, but I, in finding her trending, I saw this article by uh, Mike Frost, and I wanted to read a, a snippet of it for you. I'm not suggesting religious communities shouldn't have core beliefs and clear tenets of faith, and I'm not suggesting that religious leaders shouldn't debate and discuss their concerns when members or fellow leaders appear to contradict or challenge these beliefs. But the feeding frenzy around a gen hatmaker isn't that. It's not a respectful desire to explore matters of the heart, to find common ground, or to discern a way to live respectfully with differences on non-core beliefs. It's farewell, Jen Hatmaker, offender number 11328. It's the brutality of unhealthy religion. And wall building and ceremonial ejections are classic signs of unhealthy religion. Other indicators include being chiefly concerned with things to avoid, Measuring quantities of giving, serving, attending, etc. Locating our identity in our behavior, constricting life, simulating holiness, seeking argument, maintaining blind spots, promoting suspicion, suppressing thought, isolating dissenters. Sound familiar? I think what conservative evangelicals do to their brothers and sisters who come to different views to theirs is a clear mark of unhealthy religion. And I think the fact that evangelicals seem to focus on one prominent dissenter at a time, making an example of that person by public mockery and critique, is cruel and unbecoming. So what does healthy religion look like? Well, the opposite. In her book Bothered and Bewildered, Anne Morrissey defines healthy religion in the following way. 1. Healthy religion does not indoctrinate, but teaches people to think for themselves. 2. Healthy religion invites us to be humble about what we believe and know. 3. Healthy religion does not invest in negativity. It does not major on what it is against, but rather on what it is for. Four healthy beliefs stay in tune with reality, never filling in the gaps for what we do not know. So that's a lot, um, and I'll just go ahead and say up front, I don't, um, I don't agree with Mike Frost's theology right? I definitely come from a place to the right of him. Um, and so, yeah, I just, uh, there's a part of me that's like, okay, like, because it's, so I think a lot of this discussion around, um, you know, conservative Christianity, liberal Christianity, whatever, boils down to what is a core issue, right? And I would say the thing that, um, The thing that I would say for, if I were having a conversation with Mike Frost that I would, you know, jump on right there, like stop him way up front is, well, you don't think it's a core issue, but I think for us, for people like me, the reason that we are upset in the first place is because, I mean, what is a core issue to you, right? Like if if the centrality of scripture isn't a core issue, then I don't know what is. Um, you know, if God's will isn't a core issue, then I don't know what is, if you know what I mean? And I don't mean to be flipping and I don't mean to be reductive, but that would be as a one where my mind immediately goes to. But that being said, I think those bullet points were very convicting. Um, I know that I am wired to replicate that. And I also know that golden rule, I don't like being treated that way. Um, yeah i am at once an agent of conformity and someone who despises it um, when it doesn't benefit me when people aren't conforming to me and obviously the purpose of church is not to look like i mean it's not to become chris-like it's to become christ-like so anyway um again i don't i think that these are things that sound better in a vacuum than they might you know when you actually look at what he's intending um, and I don't mean that to uh, to be undermining or to be skeptical. I just, I've read some of the other things that, that Mike Frost has written and I I know that we're coming at things from a different perspective. And so I'm not saying you have to swallow this wholesale, but I, I as much as I don't like to read things that I disagree with, it's still helpful to me to um, to get a little bit of perspective that doesn't come to me naturally. It's not my first train of thought. But one of the things that um, that he discussed, and you know, I was just looking through some of the other things. You know, um, websites now are optimized to show you related content, and so as, via Mike Frost, I stumbled upon the concept of Dinner Church. And again, I will go ahead and preface this: I sent this um, article to—I mean, not this article. There's a there's a website called dinnerchurchmovement.org. dot org, and um, I sent it to multiple people um but afterwards looking researching the people behind this movement i would come to the same conclusion of i don't necessarily theologically align with them in terms of broader theology but i think honestly as far as like the concept of dinner church like i just like i heard it and i was like this can't be what i think it is and it is and it's amazing and personally i'm just like i um you know one of the one of the concepts i've been blessed to um learn about and experience firsthand in the last i don't know couple years is um just this idea of the table and uh you know natalie and her family have been a big part of that steve and Lacey have been a big part of that Um, jill has been a huge part of that and um legacy just in general has been a part of that so um and also corridor actually has been a part of that. I think there's something about um, about the the combination of food and faith and fellowship. And so this is from the dinner church movement um, website. Again, like the personalities driving this movement and what their goals are are probably not the same as mine. Um, actually, almost definitely not the same. Right? Like we diverge in some significant ways. But here's. I'm gonna read to you this part and let me know what you think because honestly I read this and I was like I don't have a problem with this part Uh, dinner church is practiced in various ways across the country the practice is strongest when it's adapted for your context theological background and cultural realities we think dinner church is characterized by a meal that is explicitly sacramental in nature the meal is a celebration of communion and is framed with a prayer marking the bread as Christ's body and the cup As Christ's blood. A blurring of the boundaries between the sacred and the profane. By celebrating the Eucharist at an ordinary table through an ordinary meal, we encounter Christ as present in all the ordinary places in our lives, not just those marked as holy. A focus on participation. Congregants are invited to cook the meal, set the table, and clean up afterward, all as an integrated part of the liturgy. The meal is, quite literally, the work of the people. Um, and then here are a few things to consider before you get started. It's a practice, not a model. Uh, it thrives through diversity. It is an experiment. See what works. Try different ways of doing things. There's no formula and every community is different. Um, keep context in mind. We found that dinner church tends to connect with people most in settings where shared shared meals are rare. St. Lydia's was founded in New York City, where most apartments are too small for a dining room table, and many people are far from family. Dinner Church became a powerful way to connect in a city that is anonymous and isolating. Everyone gets a job. Try rethinking the way you structure participation. With a few key volunteers who sign up in advance, many roles can be left open for newcomers to fill. For example, at St. Lydia's, a cook signed up in advance, and worship had a soft start. As congregants arrived, they were invited to help chop in the kitchen or set out silverware. These roles are handed out on the spot so that everyone had a job to do, not just a group of insiders. It's public, not private. One pitfall of dinner church is that it can easily veer toward a group of friends having dinner, and away from a public service of worship in which the stranger is welcomed. To avoid this, explore ways to ensure the newcomer is always at the center of your gathering and your core congregation is prepared to welcome the stranger. It's for neighbors and strangers. Dinner Church can help us ask a question handed down to us by the Reverend Dr. James Forbes. Who's not at the table? While Dinner Church can be an eye-opening practice for an established group, its true revelation takes place when we entertain angels unaware in the form of the stranger. As Reverend Scott preached at St. Lydia's, How can we make sure this table is always filled with all the wrong people? There will be enough. Dinner Church is a practice of hospitality. It forces us to remember that God has given us all we need. We do not need to count heads or take reservations. No matter who walks in the door, there will always be enough for everyone. So, anyway, um, I I don't have much to add to that. I just, I've been part of the um you know I think in a culture that can be at times very um focused either individually or um you know in in these tight clicky groups whether that's a family or a small group or you know whatever circle like a club, right? Some kind of affinity group. Um it's just really easy to First of all, it's easy to not have community in the first place, right? Like, I mean, just to ignore it, to put it on the back burner, to to say that you don't need it or you just don't have time for it or um, just that there aren't the right people, right? The people that you have around you are not the people that you want. Um, And not to dismiss those things, but I think that community is essential. On top of which, I think um, sometimes our definition of community can be skewed by who are the people that we like and we're willing to put up with for, you know, um, and again, like I get that I'm not the peopleiest of people. I um, am very snobby, very picky, but, um, but I don't think Jesus is. And if we are to resemble him, then I think we have to die to ourselves in some very painful ways, right? Like, I don't think that we can be the church, um, fully effectively really wholly until we um are willing to be like jesus was right like he he wasn't an excluder he wasn't a um yeah he wasn't he wasn't looking for the right people like i just i think again of of who he went and who he called to be his disciples to follow him right like these are the people when he's not here anymore who are going to continue on his ministry and his legacy and one of the things that i've seen so often is um there's this concept in sociology of um i don't think this is the right term but it's like charismatic leadership right like an organization is being led by the force of personality of an individual and when that person is no longer around to fill that role either they leave or they pass away or they you know have to retire or whatever um The other people around are not able to fill that vacuum. It's really just based on built on them and nobody else can fill those shoes. And so it just kind of falls apart. Um, And that's what Jesus was risking, right? Because none of these disciples were ever going to be him, but he didn't pick people who were these like, you know, extraordinary accomplished people who came with their own followings and came with their own influence and came with their own resources and wealth and um Polish, you know what I mean? Like, it, I think it's so telling that Paul was not one of the 12. He might be the most articulate out of all of the, um, you know, the people who were considered apostles. He was considered a peer of the apostles, Um, right? Like he wrote most of the, I mean, out of, out of all of the people who wrote books of the Bible, he's written the most. And yet, Jesus didn't come straight to Tarsus and say, hey, follow me, Tarsus? Yes, I think I got that confused with Jonah. But um, yeah, not to say that he wouldn't have been welcome, but yeah, like, Jesus came for a, not and but Jesus didn't also just come for for like one kind of person. He came for opposite kinds of people. Like James was even saying, on Sunday there was a I mean on Saturday there was a um, a tax collector and a zealot in his group. Those are mortal enemies, um, right? They they literally play for opposite teams. And yet every time Jesus had dinner, they were at the table together with him. And there's something about that. Um, And even, you know, speaking of the table, like Judas took communion. Honestly, that's one of the creepiest, like, readings in the Bible. I want to say it's John, um, but somewhere in the Gospels, you know, during the description of communion, it talks about how Judas took communion, and that's when the devil entered him, which is just a terrifying thought of, like, you're you're participating in the body and blood of Jesus, but it's the devil that you're being filled with. But... Um, yeah, I think, I think communion is this thing that, um, I think a lot of times we, we miss the, the significance of it in part, because I think we, we get resistant to ritual. Like you do something enough times and you just kind of get desensitized to it. Um, but also, you know, we were at Corridor a couple weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago. And somebody mentioned like, you know, why do we do communion with these like tasteless, um, like, prepackaged wafer, is that what you call it? I don't know. It's it's like those um, Listerine mints, but it doesn't melt in your mouth. Um, and uh, the mint strips I don't know if you all ever had those. But, um, and then again, like, I mean, I don't mind the grape juice. I like grape juice, but, you know, um, anyway, somebody brought like, sweet, like, cinnamon bread. It was so good like i was i mean i would have eaten a loaf of it um but you know originally um whether that's at the uh, uh the last supper itself or you know in the church in corinth where they had these love feasts it wasn't just oh hey here's like you know 20 minutes or whatever where we're gonna play some sad music and we're gonna read some scripture about jesus passing and you know then we're gonna each take this after we reflect it was really a much more communal like we're gonna have this meal and then the centerpiece of the meal is this um, this practice of communion because you know again in this country especially I feel like church is so individualized and I get it and I like it that way because I am an introvert and interact you know like it's hard to um, you know especially if there are people there that you don't know very well it's a lot easier to just be like, okay, me and my personal vertical relationship with Jesus, and not really worry about the horizontal. Um, you know, not have that brother's keeper mentality, right? And brother's keeper is not like a zookeeper, right? Like, um, where you know I'm keeping you. I got to make sure you're in this cage. But like, but then on the flip side of that, like, what is a zookeeper's responsibility? Is to keep the patrons of the zoo safe and to keep the animals in the zoo safe right, is to keep them fed to make sure that, um, you know, their cages are clean and, you know, whatever. Like, again, not to say that we're animals and not to say that we're zookeepers, but this idea of being a brother's keeper, right? Like, what is a keeper? Um, someone who looks out for you and takes care of you? Like, I don't I don't think anybody would object to that um, if we are able to do this humbly. And that's a learning process. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, to go back to these marks of healthy religion um, I know this and uh, I, kn- I know it's hard to to sit in uncertainty right to just say hey we don't know we feel obligated to have an answer for everything especially because we're challenged you know like it feels like every time we don't have an answer that's an excuse or an um, opportunity for doubt an opportunity for faith to fall apart but i wonder if instead faith doesn't look like hey let's fill in this blank with something that sounds somewhat plausible to us although anybody else can tell we don't know what we're talking about um and instead if faith looks more like we don't know we don't know and we may never know but we're still going to follow jesus anyway which is honestly like that's a hard thing to say, and a hard way to live, but I think that that's the honest way to live. I don't think that there's anywhere that um, that any anybody who followed Jesus claims to have all of the answers, right? Like claims to to know everything at all times, and you know, like. But I but I see people being open about their weakness, being open about um, their need for Christ, not just before they're saved, but still afterward, like to live in the power of Christ and the power of the spirit in the provision of the father. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I think of what church could be like, that's, that's the thing that I, I guess I daydream about is what is this community meant to be, right? Like what would happen if we all just lived the way that Christ has called us to? And what would our society look like? What would we look like um, and what would be the expression on jesus face if he saw us living like he did